1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm speaking with Luke Sant, author of Maybe the People Would Be the Times. This interview was conducted over the phone, so the sound quality may be a bit lower than what you're used to on the program. When did you start to think of yourself as a writer?
0: I started thinking of myself as a writer when I was 10. Um, I had wanted to be an artist up until that point, but I was never satisfied with my drawing skills. And that year, I had a great teacher who um, encouraged my writing, told me I had real gifts and that I should stick with it. And I decided to be a writer right then. Um, And footnote, at that time, I'd been speaking English for less than three years. And
1: you were born in Belgium. Um, What seemed strange to you about America when you were a kid?
0: Pretty much everything um you know i always say it, it was like time travel um because in belgium we were middle class and we had a new house but like you know similar people in that situation in europe then we didn't have central heating we didn't have a refrigerator we didn't have hot running water we didn't have a telephone needless to say no television um no record player Um, you know, we bought food fresh for every meal, all this kind of stuff. And we come to the United States and it's 30 years later in the United States. We're living in the 1930s, essentially in Belgium. And this is in the early sixties. Um, and in your, in, in the United States, we're much poorer than we'd been in Belgium, but we have a car, TV, telephone, (laughs) the whole nine yards. Um, so it was very, very odd. And also for that matter, um, I'd go to school, shifting back and forth between continents. And in Belgium, the, the study, stuff we were studying was a full year ahead of what the Americans were studying. So, you know, the, it was odd from every point of view. Um, and I wasn't particularly disturbed by it. I I was a tourist. I was enjoying the whole thing. I loved going back and forth. And I loved experiencing the different, you know, when there were great things in one place and great things in another. And, uh, it's affected my life ever since because I keep expecting to be able, you know, emotionally expecting, even though not intellectually to go back to some previous life in that way. You know, I can, I can just go back to lower Manhattan and it'll be the 1979 all over again. But, you know, um, but at that time, um, you know, it really, um, played mischief with my uh differentiating between time and space.
1: And do you feel like this kind of helped you as a writer the sense of not being quite an insider in American culture?
0: Definitely. Oh yeah, I've always been an outsider. Um, you know, I mean, pretty I you know, my childhood was pretty isolated because I'm an only child, no first cousins. Um, we came here where this was a period where there was not immigration. Very little between um the uh, the immigration after World War II that ended in the mid fifties and then the worldwide diaspora, which really began sort of in the late seventies and in that period between there wasn 't very little immigration we didn 't know any other immigrants, let alone other Belgians. We had no immigrant community you know so um so I always felt like I was all by myself in every circumstance, and you know especially since my parents and I were by then living on different planets too, because um, I adapted to English very rapidly and they just didn't, you know, they didn't adapt to the language or to the culture. Whereas I could kind of play both sides of the fence.
1: Do you know why they decided to move to America?
0: Yes. um, The, um, the local industry where I came from, it's a textile industry that had been in place for centuries and it collapsed in the 50s. And it had employed pretty much everybody in my family, at least on my father's side. And suddenly everybody was unemployed. And my father um, was faced with a choice between um, either taking a job in the Congo or, because um, this, this was a year before Congolese independence or going on the dole and he didn't want to do either one, but he had a friend, the childhood friend who'd married an American soldier after the war. She was a war bride, as they used to say, and moved to New Jersey. And it's because of them that because of her, that we, uh, we followed eventually years later, um, you know, with promises of, uh, yes, it's very easy to find a good job, et cetera. And, uh, which didn't happen, so we moved back, you know, and was a very complicated story.
1: When did you start going into the city, into New York uh, regularly?
0: Uh, when I got a scholarship to a Jesuit high school on the Upper East Side when I was 14 and was commuting every day.
1: And how long after you started commuting into Manhattan to go to school did you start skipping class and going down to the Lower East Side and uh, and, and kind of hanging around there?
0: Uh, not very long at all. (laughs) Yeah, I, well, I was kind of a model student my first year, but I was starting to sneak around after hours. I didn't really start cutting classes until my sophomore year, I think, but I was already, you know, going down to St. Mark's place and hang around, um, head shops and bookstores and stuff like that.
1: And, and did you have a sense of anything that was going on? I mean, you know, downtown New York in the sixties, there's kind of a legendarily, uh, productive artistic
0: scene. Did you have a sense
1: of that from reading magazines and headshots and stuff, or was that something you kind of organically discovered?
0: Well, I mean, I knew about, um, for example, the Fillmore East, where I saw, you know, I went there three or four times probably over the years. I, you know, I was kind of pretty tightly roped in by my parents but occasionally let me do something like that. Um, as far as the artistic scene, um, I had a wavering idea of it, um, you know, because I was, well, for one thing, I was very young, but also very shy, uh, didn't talk to people easily. Um, And so what I knew I picked up from printed sources and the underground press was not about art at that point, you know, maybe comics, but, um, but it was more about, you know, the police, the war, drug busts, um, you know, racial strife everything like that. Um, And I didn't really know about, I mean, I knew about, uh, eventually I knew about the poetry project, for example, became very important to me. Um, But as far as what people were doing, you know, I didn't have that kind of insight because I was too young. You know, to to really be led into the centers of creation, um, at least in the pre-internet era, um, it was a social thing. You were led in by other people. Otherwise, you'd probably never find it by accident. And I wasn't in a position to do that yet. That would wait until I got to college.
1: And you went to Columbia, right? Yeah, I did. Was the main reason you went to Columbia because it was in New York City?
0: Pretty close, yeah. It was that, and um, it was the school where Alan Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac had gone, And also I was a poet at the time and I wanted to study with the great Kenneth Koch, who was, um, the poetry instructor at Columbia in those years.
1: Did you end up studying with him?
0: Oh yeah. I took his poetry writing class as a freshman.
1: What what was that experience like?
0: Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, he didn't admit very many freshmen and, um, I every year, every every week, I'd get geared up. I felt very competitive about it. I'm not usually a tremendously competitive person, but I was competitive then. I was determined that my poems would beat everybody else's poems every week. Um, and um, And then, um, the year after that, I took Kenneth 's course on prosody, and that's when I realized I wasn't a poet at all because I you know was really not interested in prosody. I want to write prose actually and that's what I ended up doing. Although I still kind of feel like a poet. It's a, you know, I mean, the rules of prosody are one thing, but the uh the difference between to coin the phrase the poetic spirit and the prosaic spirit. Um I I'm a non-combatant there. I I kind of walk both sides of that line, I think.
1: Yeah, and and many of the essays in this collection, maybe the people would be the time, seem to kind of straddle that line, and they're you know they're 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 formatted in a way that makes them appear as if they're essays, but they're really something else entirely.
0: Yeah, I think in a lot of cases that's true. Yeah,
1: um, one person that you write about at some length is Patty Smith. I I love Patty Smith. I think she's the coolest person alive. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. what were your first impressions of her? When did you first become
0: aware of, of Patty Smith? Uh, there was um, new, the Rolling Stone, which was a very, very different publication back then than it was even 10 years later. Um, they, um, For a while, they were putting out these little supplements for cities. I don't know how many cities they did it in, but there was a New York supplement called the New York Flyer. And um, when Patty appeared in Cowboy Mouth, with Sam Shepard, their, the play they wrote together—they only had one performance—and there was a full story about her in the New York Flyer right after that, which I think might have been her first appearance in print, or first appearance being profiled in any case. And um, it blew—it blew me away because I thought I was a rock and roll poet. You see, that was my um, my 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 cherished belief at the time, and I couldn't believe that there was somebody else doing it too. Anyway, um, I went and saw her when she appeared at Le Jardin, which was a gay disco in the roof garden of the Hotel Diplomat on Forty West 43rd Street. <coughs> and I was just knocked out by this. Um, this was, I was at the beginning of my sophomore year at Columbia. I was 19. And um, she performed with. Um, Lenny Kay on guitar and Richard Soul on piano, and it wasn't, you know, a rock band. Uh, she, it, it would be some years afterward before she really fully developed the Patti Smith Band. This was um, a solo performance with accompanying musicians, and she told jokes. She, she read poems. She sang songs, and you got the feeling it was so spontaneous seeming. It was as if she'd made it all up on the spot she was electrifying she was really funny and unpretentious and talked directly to the audience and no showbiz patter you know was all like coming directly from her uh galvanizing performance and then you know she didn't disappoint me i think i saw her almost every time she performed after that before releasing horses in november of uh 75 um you know I saw her in in all kinds of performance spaces um and um sometimes with um Lenny and or Richard and sometimes all by herself and I was never disappointed she was just fantastic um you know I might have seen her 30 or 40 times altogether did it surprise
1: you when she started like having fronting an actual rock band and eventually re- releasing a great rock and roll record or was that, did that seem sort of the inevitable kind of next step from her solo performances?
0: Well, it didn't happen overnight. I saw it happening bit by bit. Um, You know, the first time I went to CBGB, she was performing with television or I mean, she, she wasn't performing with television, but on the same bill on the same bill. Um, Although she did perform with television a couple of times after that. Um, But um, she, um, so at first it was like those cabaret or cafe performances, but then she gradually added other musicians and they gradually became a band and they gradually became a really crackerjack band, you know, after, cause they played a lot and they toured a lot. And so constant rehearsing. Um, and, um, when horses came out, it was, you know, the logical culmination of all this. Um, and it was, you know, no nobody ever knows. I mean, with bands, you can go see bands and they're electrifying live. And then um, when it comes to putting down the wax, it congeals and it's never the same again. But that didn't happen with her. I mean, horses really, really represented what she'd been up to. It was just this natural culmination. Then after that, it started getting a little more hidebound.
1: And Lenny K. at that time was already somewhat known for compiling the Nuggets compilation. Had you been aware of Nuggets at the time?
0: I did know of Nuggets. I also knew of Lenny because um, I um, this was uh, one of those places I came upon when I was cutting classes from high school. Uh, he worked at the register at Village Oldies when it was on Bleecker Street. And um, and i just go there and, and hang out because... He'd always be talking to somebody, he, you know, the clerks, there was him, there was Bleeker Bob, a bunch of other people. <coughs> Excuse me. And then people would just come in to hang out. And they'd always be talking about music. And I got a whole education that way, you know. And um, I was I was a regular. And, I, you know, Lenny was very nice to me. Um, as I say, I was very shy, but I did strike up conversations now and down with, with him. And he was just terrific and so when i saw her play at le jardin and it was lenny on guitar who i recognized immediately you know it felt like oh yeah well this is you know it's this is a natural and logical thing that these two people i have been interested in in different ways should actually be collaborating
1: when you were writing at at this time kind of in the mid-70s you know how did how did that connect to you know, the kind of music scene. I mean, you you write that kind of music was at the center of this community, but of, of course there were people doing other things, you know, painting and writing poetry oh, yeah. and stuff like that.
0: Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. People were doing all kinds of different things. Um, and, um, you know, the idea of everybody starting a band uh, was something that crept in gradually and probably peaked around 1979, 1980, as far as my particular subset is concerned. Um, but before that, um, and probably, you know, going back as far as I can think of for people my age, um, you know, we first became aware of the music when, I mean, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like 1964, and that was a revelation, you know, And and kind of never stopped listening to music after that. And the music was, you know news that happened every day that you know x or y would release a record that would potentially you know change the world and it just was like that through the from 1965 or so until um in my experience until the early 80s um you know no matter what other interests i was pursuing Music was always a big thing, followed by only by movies. Literature, you know, then as now, not a very interesting field, except very occasionally, you know, very occasionally. Somebody publishes a book that's like revolutionary, but music was doing this every day. And And when did you start? um, Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, please.
1: Uh, when, when did you start going to see films? I mean, you you know, at places like Anthology Archives or, or, or the other kind of downtown film houses. When did you start going there, and, and how did you kind of find your way into the kind of film canon?
0: Well, um, I that started when I was in high school. You know, I would cut classes to go see movies, and gradually I learned about the history of the movies um, because, well, for one thing, there were – at least a dozen revival houses just in Manhattan at that point um who'd show you know, they all had their particular leanings. Some of them would show, you know, mainly musicals and stuff like that. You know, some would show European art films. Um and um and then when I got to Columbia there were at least half a dozen screenings on on weekends and at least one or two screenings every week weekday. Um, and people were showing all kinds of movies. You know, you'd see silent movies. You'd see African movies. You'd see, um, you know, The Czech Underground. I mean, you know, there, you, we're being exposed to so many different kinds of movies all the time, and they were always available. And um, besides the stuff that was going on on campus, the stuff that was going on in the city Um, was always listening to Village Voice. So, you know, that was an easy one-stop.
1: You have a great line in the book where you're talking about all the things that were horrible about living in New York in the 70s, and then you say, none of that is a tragedy because you can afford to fail. Do you feel like that's part of what has been lost in the kind of new New York that's been created in the past 30 years?
0: Oh, absolutely, big time. One of the biggest things that's been lost Um, because, you know, people are funneled into careers. Um, You know, when I I can honestly say um, nobody that I was friends with in college knew quite exactly what they were going to be. I mean, we all harbored various ambitions. And I think, you know, 90% of us at that point would have said poet, partly because, you know, the poetry with the poetry project, et cetera. uh, poetry was maximally hip in the early seventies when we started college didn't last too bad. But anyway, um, but, um, but you know, nobody ended up being a poet. Um, uh, and, you know, my, uh, my, my friend, uh, Jim Jarvis became a filmmaker, you know, my friend Phil Klein became a Ozer, you know all these people who I was close friends with and we talked about poetry and stuff and I knew they had other interests I had other interests but you know when it came to eventually finding a place to land something to pursue uh, it took a few years in most cases and some people didn't find it until they were in their 30s and you know it was absolutely necessary to um, go through your 20s absorbing things you know reading books, seeing movies, listening to music, looking at art, and um, and at the same time socializing, you know, and doing various possibly questionable drug adventures and all that. This is all a necessary part of growing up and being young and, and you know, getting it together to put something forth into the world. Um, and, you know, that's all lost when people are funneled into careers right away. And furthermore, they get sieved into these careers where everybody they know is pursuing the same career. And, um, you know, that was always one of the great things about the Lower East Side is that, you you know, you had your junk sculptors and your poets and your, um, you know, your, your lute players, and they'd all speak to one another. You know, they're all hanging out together. And I'm not sure this happens so much anymore because people, you know... Um, they go to college, they get their MFA, um, and then they go teach and they're surrounded by people and their professional lives and, and their social lives become intertwined. And it's all about this one line. I mean, even today I would say, you know, of my friends, probably a minority of them are writers. You know, most of my friends are artists, but in different fields. Um, and, um, but in any case, um, the ability to live cheaply and surrounded by people who are interesting when you're young is absolutely essential, and it may be something that's just gone for good, uh, you know, and I have no idea how um, young artists are going to develop under those circumstances. It's definitely going to be a lot harder.
1: That does seem to be a sort of common denominator of all the great scenes of art history is cheap rent. <laughs>
0: yes yes indeed
1: are you surprised that young people and people in my generation i'm 29 do are you surprised that people in my generation romanticize the new york of the 70s and 80s or does it seem like like pretty romantic in retrospect
0: no it it doesn't surprise me at all i romanticize it to myself (laughs) um you know i mean i when i write about it i try to be as unromantic as i can you know because the fact is um it's very easy to be carried away with the romanticism of it but at the same time you have to real you know you have to realize that we went through um you know significant parts of winter without heat um you know or without hot running water um and um brutal landlords you know sometimes there was i mean i you know mid 70s it was really unless you were going to a high hat restaurant in midtown it was sometimes difficult to find places to eat, you know, because there just weren't restaurants. Um, We're not the ones that were not just open for lunch. Um, You know, so it was not... um, It was materially not the easiest existence, but, of course, we didn't care because we were young in part. You know, I didn't give a shit what kind of food I ate. It was, uh, you know, so long as I... There was food that came around three times a day. That was good enough for me. Um, So, yeah, it, it, you know, does, especially by comparison with anything since, tremendously romantic times. And in writing about my youth, I find myself sometimes feeling guilty. You know, Um, here I am. I had you know, I lived through a wonderful time and I'm writing about it and I'm making people feel bad. They did not experience this wonderful time too. And the only way I can take comfort really is by reading, um, people's memories of the sixties, which I think were more wonderful. Than the Seventies. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> is that you can probably do that with every generation, you know, every generation, uh, envies the one before, you know, unless you're futurists, I guess. Um, uh you know it because um life was always a little simpler a little more open you know i mean those were simpler times is a very questionable statement about any period in history but nevertheless things were more open in part because um things you know before ronald reagan broke the social contract many things were easier in general about life, but also don't forget there are fewer people, you know, I mean, the, uh, the whole punk scene in Manhattan in 1975 was what? 200 people, you know, it was very small and you couldn't get to know everybody. You actually could, um, or at least you'd know them by sight or, you know, somebody who knew them, um, you know, so it, there was greater intimacy, um, there was less fear, less problems with money in general. I mean, that, nobody had any money, but um, but it nobody had any money, but you could still scratch up enough to pay rent if you're, you know, because you could get, you could be paying probably less than $200, maybe less than $150 a month. So, you know, putting in a couple of hours at a bookstore, I mean, more than a couple, but putting in a few days at a bookstore or record store or, you know, working the door at a concert venue or something like that, you could pay your rent. That makes things so much easier, you know? So it, there's, it's a combination of convenience and romance, I suppose.
1: Do you feel like living in New York at this time gave you any kind of special insight into, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the underground that you used when you wrote Low Life, which is about the kind of of turn-of-the-century underground in New
0: York? You know, I don't think of that as the underground. I mean, my purpose in writing Low Life, well, I had two, really. One of them was um, I started writing it. I mean, the impulse for writing it came when um, huge real estate investments started showing up downtown and, Buildings were being bought and flipped and, you know, speculation was going on. People were buying shells of gutted tenements gutted by fire, you know, all this sort of stuff. And um, I was afraid that it was all going to disappear without a trace, um, that the whole memory of, you know, our, you know, immigrant forebears, of um, the, the, the culture that had reigned in this neighborhood for a, a century and a half at least, was going to disappear and that you know there were weird uh recurrences there were you know certain physical spaces certain intersections certain streets seemed to lend themselves to recurring phenomena over the centuries in mysterious ways and also to declare a kind of solidarity with these people who'd gone before us you know the building where i lived when I was writing low life, I lived for more than 10 years, um, had also been the home of one of the women who died in a triangle shirtwaist fire in 1911. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, it wasn't on the underground. Um, It was the working people. It was the people who don't show up often in history because they are seen as the acted upon rather than the actors. Um, So, Anyway, that's, yeah, I mean, sure. I did gather the the impulse to write Low Life and, you know, did a lot of, unconsciously did a lot of kind of pre-research during this time, but, um, but it wasn't, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the fact is that CBGB was really kind of the last Bowery saloon, um, I mean, it literally was a Bowery saloon, and, um, As you could see, I went in there after it closed down, and you could see, like, you know, there was a a mural of a horse race and stuff like that. It had been a saloon on that spot continuously since, I forget, the 1860s, maybe, something like that. Um, Wow. And it had somehow survived as an entertainment venue um, when everything else on that avenue closed down. So it was, um, I like to think of CBGB's not only you know, harbinger of a certain kind of scene and, you know, punk and blah, 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 but also as the inheritor of this tradition going back more than a century at that point.
1: Was another thing that drew you to this kind of immigrant Lower East side of the early 20th century, the fact that you were also an immigrant?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, um, I think when you're an immigrant, you don't stop being an immigrant. You're an immigrant all your life. And uh, I feel tremendous solidarity with um with the immigrants of the 1890s as well as with the immigrants of today you know i mean i whenever i read about the mexican border i see my family there mm-hmm.
1: and that is part of what has made new york such a vibrant place for so long Is i think it's the city in america that has the highest percentage of immigrants or if if not the highest it's it's up there
0: yeah and furthermore at the time and again remember this is pre-internet um at the time it kind of felt like new york wasn't really a part of the united states it was a kind of offshore um you know sort of free city um because you know i mean i remember i mean i remember one of you know the sinking feeling which happened to me a lot in the 80s uh, began And this was in the 70s, actually, when they opened the first McDonald's in Lower East Side on First Avenue, and thinking, oh, we're done for now. Um, Because those kinds of things, those national chains and um, those national trends, you know, you'd see it on TV, and if you took a road trip outside of the city, you'd see it in action. But in New York, those things were not happening. New York was, um, you know, New York had its own culture, it had an immigrant culture. It had um, it had certain traditions that had been going on for centuries. You know, New York was the place that you went to. Um, if you don't care about having a lawn or, or 365 d- days a year of sunshine, you know, if you don't care about all those amenities, but we're serious about, you know, Emotional life and artistic life and uh, and realized that, you know, you needed rainy days and cloudy days because they matched your mood, you know, um, mm-hmm. and were um, and, you know, also there was the fact that New York, of course, this has been over for some time. But back then, uh, there was a feeling that New York was kind of eternal because it was essentially unchanged from the 1920s or 30s at that point, you know, physically. Um was very little construction. Yeah, there were, you know, it was lever house and stuff like that. But by and large, what you got were, you know, great sandstone edifices from the 1880s. And, and then, you know, rows upon rows upon rows of tenements from the 1890s, 1900s. Um, you know, it felt like, This was the oldest city in the United States in in more than one way. And by old, not a bar to creative thinking at all, but rather Mm -hmm. rooted and grounded in a way that felt comfortable to me as a European, you know, who will never feel comfortable in a place like Las Vegas that was made up yesterday, you know.
1: And. you start, you, you've been associated with the New York Review of Books for a long time, and, and you started working in the mailroom there. When you first started working there, was it kind of strictly a day job, or did you have aspirations of, you know, moving up in the building?
0: Well, at first it was a day job. I worked in the mailroom for a year, and it was strictly a day job. I, was, I wasn't I was writing very much in those days. I was really uh, – I, I think uh, – coming into the New York review coincided with probably the peak of my party going years. Um, <laughs> but uh, within a year, Barbara Epstein had asked me to become her assistant, which was new and weird and all that. I was aware that. I just, I was aware that, you know, the assistants tended to have gone to Harvard. I was a Columbia dropout, you know? Um, and, uh, I didn't feel like I matched, you know, I rated socially, um, but nevertheless i i made the move and then i saw you know i saw how um the donuts got made and i thought this is not really so difficult i could write one of these myself so i wrote one on spec and it was published and i continued to write for them ever after and that was gosh 40 years ago
1: what was that first piece about
0: it was about albert goldman's biography of elvis presley uh, which I just reviewed. Or I just read a selection from in Rolling Stone that was um, oh I don't know it was about jockey shorts and his mother or something I don't know but it just I thought this is outrageous it's just like manipulating the evidence and I was in the world's biggest Elvis fan ever but there was something about what Goldman was doing that was repugnant so and I knew that they'd sent the book out. Uh, to at least a couple of reviewers to turn it down. So I swiped the book from the review cart and took it home for the weekend and wrote a piece very quickly. So your uh,
1: first piece was a
0: pan? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Auspicious beginnings, yeah. Um, Mm. One of the things you write about in a couple of the essays is sort of crime and detective fiction. Was that an interest that you'd had since, like, childhood, or is that something you picked up later?
0: Uh, that started in high school. In fact, I was just thinking, cause I, I wrote a, I just wrote a piece, a short piece on the rock press. And I was thinking about the fact that, yeah, I just, I first read about Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and James M. Kane in, I think infusion, which was this Boston, um, rock publication from the late sixties, early seventies. So, and then I found them at the public library. Um, and, um, and that was a you know major revelation to me at the time the uh the, the the poetry of crime fiction
1: were those guys sort of like did they kind of rate in terms of the literary establishment at that time i'm, I'm not sure exactly i mean i'm sure you know people respect those guys tremendously now but did, was, was that true at the time or was it still considered sort of i don't know lower class
0: yeah it was it was not you know i mean um we uh, During that period, um, it was not uh, – you, you had nobody on campus examining that. And I, the reason I'm tripping over my tongue a little bit is because I realized that Frank McShane, um, who was um, Hammett's biographer um, – or at least he collected his letters, I think, or, um, was uh, just then starting the graduate school in writing at Columbia. But I didn't know I didn't hadn't put the pieces together. I didn't know Frank McShane, didn't know the book until it came out, etc. But yeah, it did feel like something that was going against the grain of the academy at the time. And in fact, you know, popular culture in general was not something that was examined in the academy then as opposed to, what it is now, where um, it's almost it's almost required of faculty members to touch on popular culture, which gives everything a different spin. Mm-hmm.
1: Was that kind of part of – did that sort of become your beat at the review? Is that, you know, writing about popular culture? You, write, you also write about uh, kind of vernacular photography in the book. Was that, was that kind of what one of the things you brought to that publication?
0: Uh, well, I didn't start writing about – i i wrote a few times for the about photography for the review but that was not my main venue for that kind of writing um but i mean i did you know i mean i tend to write mostly about more popular subjects for the new york review uh but not exclusively that you know i said you know i have um I have a few other knots on my rope, you know. It was French culture, which uh, French literature, I go back to every now and then. It, it, I had a, I had a very very broad mandate at that point. So I, whatever interested me, I'd write about it. And uh, a lot of it was popular culture because it was fun to write about and was not getting covered. And I knew a lot about it, you know.
1: You you teach the history of photography, isn't that right? Hmm i do when when did that when did that interest kind of really start um start up and and kind of uh when did you start writing about those topics
0: um well, i have been interested in photography since I was in high school. Vernacular photography is something I discovered through flea markets um especially there was a giant twenty four hour seven day a week flea market on Astra Place in the early 80s, and that's, that was kind of the site of my awakening to vernacular photography. And then my second book, Evidence, which was a spinoff of my first book, Low Life, was a collection of photographs uh, taken by, by at murder sites, mostly by the NYPD between 1914 and 1918. And when that book came out, I suddenly got a lot of requests to write about photography. And uh, it opened up a whole second front for me and um i you know i got very interested in photography especially um anonymous vernacular works uh, especially from the late 19th early 20th centuries and um that's that just came about i mean um i kind of backed into that job not really aware that that was going to be um a major focus for years to come but it's worked out very well
1: do you so i uh, uh, i think one of the things that's interesting to me about writing about photography is that for a long time now people have said you know everyone's a photographer now but now it really seems like everyone's a photographer i mean you know uh, thinking about facebook instagram do you feel like that has radically changed photography or do you do you feel like that's kind of more just a kind of next step in a natural progression of an art form that's always had a a vernacular element.
0: Well, it's a, yeah, it's a next step. It's a big step. Of course, it feels exponential in terms of just the volume, but you know, people were saying everybody's a photographer now. They said that in 1890 with the the Kodak box, you know, and then with um, popularly available roll film in the early 20th century and then, you know, with the the Leica and then with the Brownie um, and the Instagram, the um, it's in the sixties, you know, every time people would say, okay, well, you know, this further proves that photography is not a real art because everybody's doing it now. Um, Photography did not kind of officially become an art in many ways until the 1980s which is when major museums started photo departments. Most of them didn't have one before then. Um, and so this is just another, you know, like I say, it's exponential in terms of numbers, but I see it as just another hop, you know, and um, in 20, 30, 40 years, assuming we have that much longer as a society, um, you know, by then, um it, whatever we're doing now will seem quaintly like another um another feature of the dec- you know the landscape of the twenty tens and twenty twenties um and um you know I don't think it will have destroyed photography it will have expanded it a bit and um and certain kinds of social media photography will be um you know there'll be discoveries made after the fact, and we'll begin to see how a certain kind of style grew up without our noticing it you know this this sort of thing um you know but and but meanwhile, art photography goes on to um you know things that look like uh you know I remember when um when digital photography really became a thing um and our photography department at bard which up until that point hosted mainly um people who were doing mainly street photography um and then suddenly nobody was doing street photography everybody was doing some kind of digital manipulation but now we're coming back to street photography again and in fact there was a piece about it in the new york times just a couple of days ago the, the comeback of street photography the fact is it's never gone away you know i mean um i don't think topography as an art is being harmed by um the online version rather its vocabulary is expanded and its the expectations of that we have for the art form are being changed but um but it's all part of the same narrative
1: well, Luke Sand, I've already taken up so much of your time, but thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about maybe the people would be the times. I I really enjoyed reading it and getting to talk to you.
0: My pleasure. Great, great questions. Thank you.